All right, so welcome. So this year, our teaching theme is teaching from the threes. So part of the list of threes. And this next three months, we'll be exploring the triple gem, which is the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And then we'll move on to another list the next next quarter there. Now, the triple gem is part of these refuges that we, we take each year, kind of the formal taking of the refuges. We take them before retreats sometimes. It's also a way of, of really taking kind of a commitment to our practice. The idea of taking a refuge is interesting because it's like we're trying to shelter ourselves from something, protect ourselves from something. And this idea of protection, of, of sheltering, changes as our practice changes, changes as before we start to practice and then when we start to deepen to our practice. So let's explore these these three refuges from that perspective of sheltering. It's interesting looking at the life of the Buddha before he became the Buddha. He had a very, um, very wealthy life, very protected. As one sutta says, he was delicate, most delicate, supremely delicate. A white sunshade was held over me day and night so that no cold or heat or dust or grit might inconvenience him. And so you can imagine that. He had three palaces, one for the winter, one for the summer, and one for the rains. So it was really, you know, kind of a, a dialed in to physical comfort. And when you think about that, that was a sheltering that his parents wanted to provide him, protect him from, from discomfort, protect him from illness. They even did so far as to Anyone who was sick could not be cited by the Buddha. They would take any kind of dead vegetation and cut it away so everything was fresh and new. So, you know, as a parent trying to, to protect their child, to have that sense of supporting them from the suffering of life. And that was the way they wanted to do it. I remember when my daughter was very young and, you know, there's a, there's a place where they, they start to explore more and having some small suffering you know, like a broken crayon <laughs> and just really being upset by that. And I just felt myself wanting to protect her from that suffering to somehow shelter her from ever having disappointment or any kind of loss in her life. And perhaps that's part of what the Buddhist parents hoped for him. But at some point he realized that that wasn't really sheltering him from what he really needed sheltering from. He realized even though he had this very rarefied existence, he still would experience old age, sickness, and death. He was so shocked to see this, to see these heavenly messengers when he went out beyond the grounds. And I was reflecting again with my daughter, she's 19 now, but when she was like three or something, just reflecting that that would be such a disservice to protect her from that suffering. Because that suffering is what helps us grow, helps us learn. Help us find what's actually a true refuge. That if we never experienced suffering, we would never have that chance. So the Buddha realized that he needed to find some refuge that was that was much more stable. That wasn't based on the conditions of things being dialed in, having the sunshade over his head, having the the rains palace and the winter palace and the summer palace. 
something that was much more stable, something that was unchanging. That's one way he phrased it, is looking for something which is beyond change, is unconditioned. Sometimes he would call it the deathless. Right? So it's not about becoming immortal. It's actually much more about finding something that our attention, our, that's not so much our attention, but someplace that we can reside, that our sense of well-being and happiness can reside, that's not dependent upon the situation, circumstances, or conditions of our life. The Buddha realized at one point he was looking for that kind of sheltering, that kind of happiness, that kind of peace in things which are always in flux, that are always changing. He would say, okay, this is going to be it, and then that would change. Or if it didn't change, he would change. And he realized, okay, there's these two things which are constantly changing, the happiness I'm seeking externally in the sense of me who's seeking that. And he said, that doesn't make any sense. This is a hopeless way to do this. So he sought a different type of shelter. And so many of us, as we started the practice, how many of us started practice because we had so much pain in our lives, so much suffering? We, we tried so many different other ways of solving that. Addiction, escape, material gain relationships, all these different ways, and yet there's still this underlying suffering. This starts to move into the second refuge of the Dharma, what the Buddha taught. And often this this piece of the Dharma really does evolve as our practice deepens and changes. The very first Dharma teaching I heard that really set the hook, if you will, that really got me engaged, that made me think, well, maybe that's the place I want to follow. Was that kind of a modern way of describing the rising of dukkha? When the teacher said, okay, if you have an experience times your resistance to it, that multiplier creates suffering. Okay, so I heard that, and I was going through a lot of suffering at the time, a breakup of a, a long committed relationship, feeling the ground, you know, shaken under my feet, the hopes for future being very different than I thought, tremendous emotional pain. And I heard that as like, I want that. <laughs> I want to have less suffering. I want to have some sheltering from that. So that drew me in. And if at that point, it was just a concept. It was an idea. It's like, well, this is really interesting. What does it mean to resist experience? What does that mean? And that was a theme in my, my early practice for years was how do I relax with this moment's experience? And I had deeper and deeper understandings of what it really meant to relax. I was like, oh, this is this. Now I understand what it means to relax. And then a year later, oh, this, this is what it means. And each of that was a deepening of understanding that refuge of the Dharma. And so the Dharma is something that there's such a, a broad amount of teachings, so many different things. There's about, from the early teachings, about 3,000 suttas from the Buddha that we can explore and, and land on. And there's some core teachings that really stand forth. Things like the Four Noble Truths, understanding that there is dukkha, there's this suffering that's optional, that's added on to experience. 
And there's an arising of that dukkha. It doesn't just happen. There's a way that our, we create that dukkha through our relationship to experience. Then one teacher summed it up as resistance. You can talk about it as craving, as tanha, as becoming, all these different ways. And there was a, there's the third noble truth, the end of suffering. There's a cessation of that suffering. There is a release of that. This is why the whole practice makes sense, is that if there was just dukkha, that would be kind of very depressing, <laughs> right? It would be, it's not a first noble truth tradition. There's these four noble truths. And so as we, as we learn to take these teachings and see how do they actually show up in this life, in this very experience that I'm having right now. Because it's not meant to be an abstract thing. It's meant to be really seen and known and practiced. And of course, the fourth noble truth, the truth of, of the path leading to cessation, the eightfold path. And so as practitioners, when we consider this, this sense of refuge, that sense of sheltering, it really does evolve as our understanding evolves, we first have this kind of sense that what I'm doing isn't working. And so I'm going to try this, this Buddhist thing. It sounds interesting. It sounds inviting. Or maybe we have some experiences of meditation or that quality of, of being collected and settled, feeling a moment of, of peace that we were able to cultivate through our practice. And as our practice deepens and evolves, if you get through this kind of, there's often a transition period that sometimes people fall off in their practice. There's that initial kind of hook, that initial excitement by the practice. Like everything is just Buddhist. Everything is the Dharma. I just, I just love it. I can't get enough of it. We just want to meditate and practice. And at some point in about that, you know, three, five year mark, we kind of get into this, Sometimes it's a little bit of a stagnant place because that initial enthusiasm starts to fall away and we have to do some of the deeper work and we have to maybe reframe the very reason that we're practicing to re-up that. And so that's why the refuges are kind of a fresh act that we do again and again. Okay, what does that mean? What is my understanding of the Buddha right now of someone who walked this path? What's my understanding of the Dharma? And how that deepens and broadens. And then finally, the Sangha, the third refuge. How does this show up? How does this help? I think, I'm not sure if how, I don't know if I can make a, a broad statement on this, but certainly my own experience in terms of Sangha, I started off really individually. I'm going to just practice this. Right? And then I started to go on retreats and I realized, wow, there's a lot of people doing this too. It's kind of neat. And they all seem to be, you know, really into it. They've seemed very settled in their practice. And so that had a quality of inspiring me, even though I, by my first retreat, my first introduction to Sangha was on a, a residential, just a short you know, two or three day retreat. I remember everyone in the hall just seemed so still and so solid. And here I was just kind of like lost, like a little 26-year-old 20, lost in this whole process, trying to find my way. But I, I recognized that they seemed to have integrated something that I wanted to integrate. So they inspired me with their practice. 
And as I practiced more, I started to develop those, those friendships, those connections. One of the big pieces that shifted was being involved in small groups. You know, we used to have a lot of Kalyanamita groups, and hopefully we can re- revamp those or revitalize those. So doing groups of you know, 10 or so, eight people, eight to 10 people that we focus on something like, how does Dharma work as a parent? How does Dharma work? How do you integrate your life into your Dharma practice? How does death and dying inform your practice? These are different groups that I participated and led. And those, those meetings, it's like you're sharing some exploration, hearing people explore the Dharma, hearing their own struggles, their insights. It's incredibly inspiring. And to have a chance to actually voice your own understanding or lack of understanding, that also helps to integrate. That's why every other week we do these small group discussions to give you a chance to, to voice your understanding, to voice your exploration. Because if you just kind of keep it to yourself, you can kind of like think you know what, you kind of have some sense of it. But to actually put it into words, to actually communicate that to someone else, it's a big shift to understand, articulate how you're practicing, how you're working with these, these aspects of the Dharma. It really deepens your practice. And that's the power of Sangha. And listening to other people also voice and explore. And so in this way, the Sangha is a, essential part of these these three three gems. There's a a famous sutta where um, Analio, or not Analio, but um, Nanda, I should say, Nanda, was uh, the Buddha's attendant. And he asked the Buddha, you know, I think the Sangha must be at least half of the holy life. And the Buddha corrected him and said, no, Ananda, it's actually all of the holy life. It's all of the holy life. And that reflection that it's, it's that community that allows the practice to, to flourish, to deepen. And that's really the purpose of SIMS as an organization is to provide the opportunity for community, to be able to talk to people, to have like-minded people joined around exploring, exploring the Dharma and exploring themselves, understanding how the practice shows up in the day-to-day life, in the life, the times when you get your the rug pulled out of you when you experience loss, when you experience death. This is where Sangha really comes forth. And all with this exploration of the Dharma, all guided by the Buddha's amazing insights, his amazing journey that he went on. And so any time in our lives, you're know, calling forth those, those refuges when you're finding that struggle. It's interesting just to watch as the, the homework from last week talked about noticing when you have some difficulty show up in your life. Okay. It could be something small, like, you know, being in a traffic jam. It could be some small disappointment. It could be something much bigger. Where do you first go for relief? Where do you first go for sheltering from that? What's your natural impulse? Right. As you notice that, then reflect, okay, is that really the wisest one? Is that the most, the most beneficial one? 
So pausing and seeing maybe one of these refuges of the Sangha, the Dharma or the Buddha actually might provide a, a fuller, a deeper refuge. So just a point of inquiry, something to notice. But where do we go when things get difficult? What is our refuge? All right, so let's just sit quietly for a couple moments, letting those words settle. So small groups, so we'll be using the homework from last week. It's basically around reflecting on these three refuges of the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And particularly that question I, I posed at the end of the talk is, what do you tend to go to when you do have some struggle in your life? It could be a relationship struggle. It could be a, a, something in your physical body. It could be any number, number of things. What's your initial movement, right? And then also explore how perhaps you found other ways of, of finding those refuges. You know, are there other ways of finding refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, right? So sometimes we might, okay, when I get stressed, I just want to go, check out. I want to distract myself. I want to do this or that. And then sometimes I go and meditate and how that, what kind of refuge those, how do you contrast those refuges? Does that make enough sense? Yeah. All right. So those in person, why you join to groups of, let's do four to five people and same thing online. And so go ahead. We'll do this for 20 minutes and I'll give you a warning when it's about five minutes till. Okay, welcome back. Hopefully that was an interesting conversation. So we have some chance for some questions and answers, or at least responses. I don't know if there'll be any answers. So online, you can raise your, your virtual hand. It'll probably be the easiest for me to see, so it uh, toggles you up to the front. And in person, you can raise your physical hand. Yes, do you mind coming up? It's, is it Kyle? Hi. Uh, so in reference to the Sangha um, and how important that is, I was wondering, given that that's something that we don't always have control over, you know, sometimes you find yourself in a pandemic where you're forced to be alone for, mm-hmm. uh, you know, years. And also a lot of meditation masters will supposedly go into a cave for years and meditate mm-hmm. alone. Um, so how does the importance of Sangha, uh, fit into those ideas? Both the kind of the sense of isolation, whether it's imposed or internally or by conditions. Yeah. Well, one way to re- to reflect on Sangha, there's, I talked about it more like the actual, you know, connections, but it's also going to be held as just all the people who've ever practiced. So when you're practicing, you can, you know, especially when someone goes into like a, imposed hermitage, for example, they're often reflecting on all the people who've practiced in that way over the years. And that gives them a sense of connection, you know, to that larger Sangha. Sometimes it's considered all those who have awoken as part of that Sangha. And, you know, when you're practicing, you know, like Insight Timer, if you notice, if you reuse that app, you know, at the end of your sitting, it says, you know, 20,000 people just meditated with you. And that helps bring that quality of, of, of connection, of, of relationship. So it's, it is, there's a way that we 
it's much more tangible and in a lot of ways if we're sitting actually in the presence of self. But like those online, you know, we did, we did what, a year, year and a half of purely online. And there's still this sense of all being joined together. So I think it's still, it's it still can be very alive. Does that help answer? Yeah. So is it yeah. almost more like the idea of community that you hold in within, within your mind that, Yes, the idea of community, it's the idea of, and it's also the tangible thing that realizing that I'm not the only one who's ever done this. You know, I, I can look and see that, okay, there's people who are practicing in the same way that I am. There's people going through the same struggles, the same insights, and that brings a sense of confidence to your, your practice. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Kyle. All right, anyone online like to ask or share anything? All right, Iris. So in in response to stress and, um, you know, so right now um, I'm stressed because my cat is ill. And so my my initial um, responses are uh, fear, (laughs) fear, helplessness, catastrophizing, you know, worry. Um, but I, you know, sort of fairly quickly, um, you know, see how, um, how much suffering that causes. And, you know, some of it does feel, yeah, I mean, those feelings just, just spontaneously arise and I can't just make them go away. But, um, the, the refuge of, the practice is very much there and um and so you know some of it is kind of in in a in a cognitive way understanding um of the importance of of being present being present you know with with her suffering and um and just tr- trying to be really present with what what I need to do to take the best care of both her and myself that I can. And so that feels to me like, you know, refuge in in the practice and, you know, not necessarily separating out the three, the three, just, you know, the practice for me is all three of them. Great. Thank you for sharing that. Iris, I started to hear about your, your kitty. I know that you've probably all, created a connection with with her online here seeing her featured so much in your your zoom room there it's interesting like the the refuges often we don't realize how much they're there for us until we have those kind of things happen i think back before you started to practice before you learn how to meditate what would you do your mind would you know be you have all the worry all that stuff come up but how would you work with it you wouldn't have perhaps the same tools you have now and so those tools, you know, they, they really activate. It's like, okay, I can actually call that forth. Of course, the mind's going to have its reaction. Of course, it's going to have the fear and the unsettledness and all of the, you know, the, the mind tripping to the future and past and the grief and all of that's going on. And you can observe that. You can find even just a little bit of connection with the body, with the present moment. That's a profound refuge. 
And sometimes it yeah, doesn't make sense to tease out, okay, that's Buddha, Sangha, or, or Dharma. It's like it's the whole thing shows up. Thank you, Iris. All right, back here online, anyone, or in person, sorry, sometimes I get confused about, because I feel really connected to people, and it's like, okay, wait, there's people here too. <laughs> anyone back in person? Yeah, Adam, come on up. Hey, Tim. Hey, everyone. Um, so in regards to the homework of, of kind of noticing where you naturally go for refuge or that first impulse. Um, so this, this week has been uh, rich with opportunities for practice in that it's been uh, kind of a really challenging, sorrowful mm-hmm. week. Um, and what, you know, I've had a lot of success actually kind of recognizing when I'm going to one of my favorite default refuges and giving a little space there and seeing what happens. And so this homework was kind of surprising in that what I was noticing was, you know, I'm going to use snacking as my favorite example for my refuge and turn away from something. Um, is where, you know, I would be like, oh, I'm going to go to the pantry. And I would think, okay, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, as I'm shoving chips in my mouth. (laughs) And the image that comes to mind is like, there's this like Seinfeld episode where one of the characters learns this phrase, serenity now, and they're like screaming it. (laughs) And, you know, I just had that kind of feeling of like, wow, I'm really turning away in a way that is um, like, you know, it, it was a kind of weird thing. It was like, it feels like an unskillful thing, but I'm recognizing it. And I just, I wonder if you have any thoughts on like either, is there some skillfulness there that's happening? And if not, maybe how to um, create more space for skillfulness when things get more intense than than your default or your normal experience would lend itself to. Mm. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Because I think that's, you know, we can re- relate to that. You know, many of us can relate to that, how we just feel gripped by our, you know, our kind of default way of comforting ourselves, of helping soothe our feelings. And as you're speaking, I was just struck that you were aware of all of that. Okay, so that's that's the the Dharma coming in. That's the practice coming in. So there's there's an awareness and a recognition of like, oh, there's, you know, I'm I'm doing this and I may not think it's the best thing to do, but I'm still doing. But there's a way that you're observing all of that. And the way you described it was there was more of a a quality of, of just that, that observation itself. There's a part of that was able to see that without too much judgment. Of course, there's some judgment laced in there, but there's just some recognition. And that's, that's one of the pieces as, because we're so used to um, asserting our effort and our will to make things happen that we have to learn to trust that seeing something clearly actually starts to transform it in us. Because usually we think we have to be in there, we have to be struggling. And sometimes just that moment of clear seeing starts to shift it in ways we don't even realize. 
So there's that piece. And then there's when things are really difficult, I think it's often, it's helpful to kind of step back and kind of see if you can to look at, okay, where's, what's the hottest part of this? What's the most painful piece of it? And sometimes when the practice isn't engaging, it's because we're trying to use the wrong kind of practice in that moment or it's toward the wrong direction. So noticing, okay, where's the most tender part of this? Really feeling that, you know, feeling that, that, that pain in there. I think, um, is a Janine Roth had a book called, you know, is it feeding the, the hungry heart or feeding? It's like basically that way that we use food often to try to, to, to comfort, to feel that pain inside us. So learning to, okay, how can I find a way to, to touch that pain and hold it in a way, have compassion toward it? And where is that pain? And maybe what else is of support? You know, whether it's friends, loved ones, other ways of, of expanding. So, all that comes from that, that contact of that. And realizing that sometimes you just need to distract yourself. You need to somehow, you know, use, use food as a way to get, you know, I need to have something to grind to find my, my, uh, some, some breathing room in that and having compassion for that too. But sometimes we have this idea as practitioners. I was just teaching a retreat this weekend at Cloud Mountain and one of the things that came up is that sometimes we have this overlay as a practitioner, this is how I should be. And that really gets in our way. Like, you know, a good practitioner would never do this. You know, a good practitioner wouldn't have this kind of emotion or this kind of reaction. And then we just tie ourselves in knots because we, there's an extra suffering with that. And so sometimes noticing, okay, what's my overlay? What's my assumptions of how I should be in this moment? Okay, what's, and then what's the truth? What's, what's really needed here? What's the reality of it? And then from that basis, then often the, you know, the path starts to open up. Thank you, Adam. Okay, Kathy, go ahead. This is something I just have kind of working, uh, the homework has been great, actually. It has, uh, been very very rich uh just coming up but popping up and one of the things i've been uh thinking about and i've talked to a few friends about it too is uh i'm trying to learn to paint and yet every day comes wonderful morning you know i've got time i've got a little time after breakfast why don't i go paint instead of do housework every day the same thing every day the same thing and I think I, well, I'm seeing that I'm taking, I'm kind of avoiding, I'm taking refuge in doing something familiar rather than something so difficult because I'm a beginner. But I figured out behind all that, I had to give up music for uh, physical reasons. And so I said, okay, I'll paint. But it's not that easy. And I think behind all of that, is uh, my the pain unacknowledged pain of giving up music, and I'm looking for uh, you know I, this was kind of like ping pong balls going off and uh, finding refuge from that, and I think maybe just uh, sitting with it, sitting with that now, now that I've got a breakthrough, I'm hoping. 
I don't know. Do you have any ideas about this, Tim, that might be helpful? Well, I think you described it well, Kathy, that, you know, we, we sometimes find um, that we act kind of in a, we're trying to solve one problem, you know, through not the best solution. Like we don't even realize quite what the problem is. Like, you know, that, that grief of having lost the capacity to make music and trying to fill that with something else without really feeling that grief. So I think you, you just, you really had a good resonance with that, seeing that, okay, maybe that's what I need to touch into is feeling, you know, those feelings around. I feel that tenderness of, not be able to, to express the artistic way that you used to be able to do. Yeah. And once you make contact with that, then yeah, maybe, maybe painting is a beautiful way of, of, of a new way of doing that. Or maybe another form of music or maybe something completely different. But it's like, if we don't really touch into that, that pain, we're trying to solve something, you know, without really having that base. I think that that's one of the wisdoms of the Four Noble Truths. The Buddha doesn't talk about, you know, how do you end suffering? He talks about first notice that there is suffering, really land in that, really, really in, embody it, really notice it in a way that's not, that's complete, that's a way that's completely honest. It's completely open and vulnerable to that. And in that way, you see the, actually the nature of that suffering. Just like, you know, the Buddha and his parents, he, they tried to shelter him from suffering but it wasn't really a true sheltering it just was kind of postponing that but we have to as human beings we have to kind of go through that we have to see our strategies and see how they don't always work and that seeing itself then becomes a place of wisdom that we grow from yeah Yeah. thank you thank you kathy all right suze you like to go ahead yeah, after um, we each shared in our small group, the topic came up of the difficulty for some to take refuge in the Buddha because how he abandoned his family. And I imagine what, some men might have difficulty with that as well, but I think a lot of women have, a, have difficulty with the fact that this guy abandoned his family and went off and for his adventure and we talked about, you know, some ways of you know, he was human and and he was also from this culture and stuff. But I wondered if you had any any comments about um, how how to hold that, how to process it, um, what to make of it. All right. So kind of the the shadow side of of dharma of practice. And I think that's that's an important piece to bring forth because you know if we look, so the the sense of of really you know if you look at any tradition and Buddhism is no different you know if you look closely there's there's pieces which aren't don't seem so wholesome you know for example how uh, nuns are treated in the in the really the Theravada tradition they're really not allowed to take full ordination you know from the the hardline perspective which is is really doesn't make any sense to me. And then the, the part you mentioned about the Buddha abandoning his family and, and going to, to practice. So I think it's, you know, part of it we also have to, 
look at what does that really mean from that time period? You know, how much was the Buddha really, if we look at like the modern, you know, I don't know, was, do we still use that phrase, new age guy who's, you know, taking care of their kids and, you know, being really involved. We look at that image versus what was perhaps the reality back then. And the Buddha may not have been as involved with raising the children anyway. There might that, I'm not sure about the reality of that. But there was that turning away. That was that, okay, I'm releasing this, this, you know, having a young child. That's something I, you know, I can't imagine myself as a, as a father doing. So it's, you know, part of it is that, that choice. Yeah, that's, I have to, I have to feel into that some more, Suze, to see what, what comes up around that. I think with, if you look at the whole circle of, of, of life with the Buddha, after he became awakened and started to teach, his son then became, you know, a monk. And he actually got in a little trouble for, you know, take, taking his son to become a monk, probably from his, the mother. So there's some of that, you know, that tension. But he did, you know, come back to really care for his son and, and support him and what he felt was the most important. And this is something you see in, in any, I don't know if any, but many people over history who have really delved into something in a, you know, a really beautiful way. They sometimes aren't very good in, in the family department, right? They sometimes, you know, abandon their kids or just so obsessed with what they're, they're focusing on. So that, yeah, that part of the, the refuge story of the, the, the Buddhist story, I can see how that would be a, quite a struggle around that. And so, you know, part of it is also learning that there is this humanness that anyone we look at closely, they're not perfect, you know, and how we idolize the Buddha, or idolize different teachers. But if we get to know them, they realize they're, they're human. They have their, their failings. And so for myself, there's a stage I went through when I really wanted my teachers to be perfect. And then once I started becoming a teacher, it's like looking behind the curtain and realize these guys are not, don't have it all together. There's a lot of stuff going on that you don't think it would happen with teachers. And you realize this is just part of this humanness. And so you start to learn to kind of balance, you know, what is, is really a benefit in their, their teachings and learn how to kind of negate or how to not partake of what is not so beneficial. Of course, sometimes, you know, when someone really does a lot of unethical things, it's like that becomes, you just can't follow that teacher. So it's, it's this interesting balance. And with the Buddha, you know, I think that was, you know, if he had, if he had chose to stay at home, you know, we wouldn't be meeting here. So there's also weighing that benefit, you know, versus the consequence. So it's, yeah, it's a very nuanced question. And so I think a lot of it is, is noticing where is the energy around that question? You know, what, how does it resonate in my own wounding and my own hurt? And, and I don't have any clear answers on that one. Thank you, Suze. All right, go ahead, Jen. Yeah. So on that question of um, family, there's a, a quote that I um, hear regularly enough. Um, well, two things. One, um, 
I think we also have to look at our notions of family and, and just our attachment to that. Because uh, Thich Nhat Hanh couldn't go back home. He couldn't go back to his family. And so I think where he um, found his peace is recognizing the interconnectivity of us. Um, and then uh, the quote that I keep hearing was from um, Mother Teresa. And she said, the problem with the world is that we draw the circle of our family too small. And so I think once we realize that we are connected, then our more fixed notions of family kind of fall away. And there's a broader sense of that. Great. Thank you for sharing that, Jen. Yeah, that's, that's a, a helpful perspective that, you know, the, what it was like, you know, for the Buddha to leave his family, you know, he may have come that, that sense of, of feeling that, that a lot of connection with him, even though he was practicing that part wasn't highlighted in the suttas and was, was brought back. And we have these modern examples that, that really point to that. So thank you, Jen. All right. So thank you all. And I'll see you in March and enjoy Arv's talk next week. And Tori will be, also here in February. All right, goodbye.